This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. I used to feel like there was a perfect song for every scene, and I would worry that like if I didn't find it, somebody else would. And so I had to kind of relax and just know that like you only know what you know. If you haven't heard it yet, buddy, it's okay. Welcome back to Working. I'm your host, June Thomas. And I'm your other host, Isaac Butler. Isaac, as always, it's fabulous to share a Zoom room with you. Tell me, whose voices did we hear at the top of the show? June, it is always good to record with you, and I'm sure you really enjoyed uh, watching me yawn in our (laughs) Zoom call two seconds ago. But anyway, the uh, voices we heard this week are Bruce Gilbert and Lauren Micas. And what do they do? They are music supervisors, uh, most recently of two wonderful projects, Only Murders in the Building and Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. Good grief. I know, right? They're clearly at the top of their game then, because talk about two projects that have been universally acclaimed. And there are also two projects where there's a ton of music to deal with. Like in Only Murders, the three lead characters have musical associations immediately. And one of them is dating a classical musician on top of it. Yep. And in Everything Everywhere, there are multiple universes, each with a different sound. Both of those projects use music in really clever ways and in complicated ways, frankly. And as you'll hear, those two processes are really different. Only Murders in the Building was, I think, quite a bit more of a free-for-all in terms of how it conceptually came together. Whereas with Everything Everywhere All at Once, which is written and directed by Daniels, which is the name used by the creative partnership of Daniel Kwan and Daniel Scheinert, uh, they had a lot of clarity from the get-go about how they wanted music to work in the film. Got it. Well, I am super excited to hear this interview. But first, I believe that you have an extra segment for Slate Plus members. What will they hear? Yeah, we do a deeper dive into only murders in the building as an attempt to try to answer the most unanswerable question of all. What does New York City sound like? That sounds amazing. And nobody would want to miss that. Fortunately, no one has to. As a member of Slate Plus, you'll get no ads on any of our podcasts. You'll get unlimited reading on the Slate.com website. And you'll also get member-exclusive segments from us and other shows like Culture Gabfest and The Waves. And then some shows like Slow Burn and Big Mood Little Mood give you entire extra episodes. To learn more about becoming a Slate Plus member, go to Slate.com slash Working Plus. Now let's hear Isaac's conversation with Bruce Gilbert and Lauren Micas. Bruce, Lauren, thank you so much for joining me this week on Working to talk about your process. Thank you. Nice to be here. Thanks for having us. So we've had one music supervisor guest before. This is the only second time we've featured music supervisors on the show. So I think we should probably just start on a very basic practical level, which is what is the job of a music supervisor? What, what do you do? The basics are we just, we oversee all, all the musical aspects of a production, TV or film. Mm-hmm. That entails, you know, selecting songs on the creative end, putting soundtracks together. The, mountain of paperwork that follows uh, in terms of licensing and getting approval and all that fun stuff. And then in a lot of cases, you know, identifying a composer for a project, working with them, trying to get the direction just right so we can achieve the, uh, the musical goals of, of the show. And how did you become music supervisors? Um, I got lucky and did an internship on the Tree of Life in Austin for mm-hmm. that Terrence Malick film. And a producer... First, I started in the art department and a producer on the show knew I was in bands and interested in music supervision. 
And he was like, why don't you just learn how to clear things on Tree of Life, which included hundreds of classical pieces. And so I kind of got the the boring side of the job down first where you mm-hmm. have to do all the research. And I mean, some of it's interesting, like, um, and finding the right recordings that you can use and really learned like the nuts and bolts of the clearance process. Mm. So I came in in kind of a weird way, but because there's no one way into this job. So I right. guess all the ways into this job are weird. But and, right. The previous person yeah. I interviewed started as like a nighttime DJ. Right. 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 Yeah. And so you were a musician. Yeah. Yeah. What and instruments I, do you play? Um, I play guitar and some piano and sing. And I studied film in college, too. So those are always my two interests. And what about you, Bruce? Almost the opposite. I found my way into a job at a motion picture advertising agency, like a trailer house, as we call it now. And I was just, you know, the, the star job there was an editing job. And I had been told that there was somebody there that picked all the songs for trailers or score pieces from other films. And that was of interest to me. I didn't study music, but I played music just casually and was a rabid fan. And so long story short, I ended up the, the sort of mailroom gig at the time at that point in, in like these, any, any sort of production place was like driving around town, you know, before we were watching everything online, it was just like sending three quarter inch tapes over to Sony and back to the place. Mm. And then I soon was able to assist this guy who was a music supervisor. I didn't even know what that meant. Mm. And before long, I was able to have his job. And before long, I had people, I was running a department. And after many years of doing that, it was all like huge campaigns for big movies. And it was gnarly. It was like, you know, it was high stress, high volume, and then I, I grew like terribly tired of it because it was just became a grind. Um, I took some time off and then like tiptoed back into music supervision. I was offered a TV show and I didn't realize that it was like I had a crazy boot camp from working in the trailer business. And working on TV and film actually was like a lot less demanding and a lot more creative. And so I had this skill set that like I really didn't even realize was like so valuable to me but I had to enlist people and sort of learn myself about the horrific back end of this job which is like I said a a mountain of licensing and all that yeah Yeah. perhaps before we move on we should talk about the onerous process that is licensing (laughs) and music clearances because you know you just hear all the time it's so so hard you know i i recently wrote a book and they were like whatever you do don't use a song lyric as the epigraph (laughs) it'll take months to get just your epigraph cleared you're going to pay ten thousand bucks for it you know just don't even go anywhere near it uh and you have to go near that like every day as part of your job so why are music clearances so complicated and onerous why is it so difficult to do that part of the job well i would say that for some people it's not i think it's like their Mm. sweet spot it's their love language they want nothing more than to email back and forth with a lawyer about percentages on writer's (laughs) share um but i think for creative people like ourselves i mean this is actually a, a great question in terms of like the bigger question around music supervision and who's fit for the job because it even if you're just a music nerd or a DJ or a musician and you came to it from or you were a label exec and the music industry collapsed and you were looking for a job there's so much more to it than any of us could have ever imagined mm-hmm. and if you are maybe not equally creative and sort of OCD or detail oriented the more you are at the at the latter, the easier time you're going to have. Um, or if you're busy enough and you can enlist people to help you, that you can delegate, and so all of a sudden you're like running running a, a shop or like a business. Which again, the creatives in us aren't aren't used to that, or we weren't at one point. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so is it your love language, Lauren? Because you started doing it as a intern. No, I was trying to <laughs> run away run away from it as quickly as possible. But I was. I mean, I do enjoy like the sleuthing aspect of when you find like a rare recording that you you know and you love and then you you can like if nobody knows where where it lives and you're the one that figures out that oh actually it belongs to you Sony ATV cuz i found this like crazy um old 45 on like this random website or eBay and it connects it to this company and that part's like kind of exciting but I think it's definitely like a great knowledge and skill to have and it helps you do the job better overall because you know how to 
communicate this to producers and to studios and everything. And it's such a necessary part of being a good creative because you inherently understand what you can and, you know, pitch or not sort of. Um, right. But at the end of the day, my dream would be to like, yeah, enlist people to do that for us. And um, I just listen to songs and drink martinis, you know? <laughs> yeah, I was wondering about that, about what that process is like day to day. I mean, even if you're not working on a specific film of like, you know, but your research process in general must be listening to as much music as you can and then catalog. I mean, do you catalog it in Spotify playlists? You know, how do you, what are your listening habits like as a result of your job? It's constant. I mean, mm-hmm. we're inundated with stuff from reliable sources and and mysterious ones. And then we sort of spend equal time following rabbit holes, you know, now obviously almost entirely online, but it used to be like I would go to Amoeba. I would get as many CDs as I could afford. I would listen to every one of them. I would put masking tape on the back. I would buy scores. I would like find pieces of score that I thought were interesting. And from the trailer business, you know, it was mostly licensing pre-existing scores. So I would listen to every second of a score that came out, no matter what. Mm. And so I think because we're not necessarily licensing pre-existing score music anymore in our current um, roles, it's listening to a ton of new music. But for me, like the quote unquote problem with listening to new music exclusively is I think everyone else is doing that too. I mean, it's endless, but like other supervisors are probably looking for amazing new songs to place. And so we spend a lot of time digging through dusty old old mm-hmm. bins, you know, virtual bins or real ones. Yeah. Um, but there's so much content. And so right. I used to feel like there was a perfect song for every scene. And I would worry that like if I didn't find it, somebody else would or that I just like hadn't sort of completed the task to perfection and so I had to kind of relax and just know that like okay you you only know what you know mm-hmm. all the music that's in your brain or your hard drive or your Spotify playlist like that's what you have access to and if you haven't heard it yet buddy it's okay you know like <laughs> it, 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 it you may or may not be right about that um but I don't know that sounds kind of insane it's just like it's just a bit of a perfectionistic aspect mm-hmm. of what I do. I mean, I think every artist and every creative profession struggles with whatever form of perfectionism mm-hmm. they have to do. I mean, that happens to be yours. Do you know what I mean? But it's like, mm-hmm. oh, sure. did I get this sentence perfect? Or you know, yeah. sometimes you just have to be like, well, yeah. every sentence can't be a glittering, beautiful gem. The, you know, yeah, yeah. You know, you get overwhelmed if that's if that's the case. Yeah. When's yeah. the painting finished? But I think right. us working together can give us a, I don't know if in my experience, like it gives you the little bit more security that when we decide whatever we're sending to creatives, you know, like we feel duly confident about the choices, you know, totally. And that's I mean, the that, beautiful that's part the, of the team. Yeah. Yeah. That's the beauty of collaborating is that we'll edit each other's stuff constantly. Like Lauren will send me a, a selection of ideas for a particular spot, a scene or a sequence or whatever. And I'll, and vice versa, and we'll just be like, yes, no, yes, no, yes, no. I mean, we have a lot of the same instincts, but of course we'll come up with stuff that the other person hadn't imagined. And so like that combo of that is, it's really strong for us. It it makes the job easier because like Lauren said, it's like you're more confident that someone sort of checked your work before an editor or producer or director has a chance to, to weigh in. But I feel like by the time we've gone back and forth on something, when we're sending stuff over, we're pretty confident that there's something even if sometimes we'll send like very few things. Sometimes we'll be asked for more, but we both are like, yeah, this is the one probably like, it'll mm. just be like the top of the list. So how did this partnership start? When did you all start working together? I moved from Texas where I, or Austin, where I started working to LA in 2014. Cause I wanted to do, remain freelance and develop it into like a bigger, more real career. And Mutual friends introduced us so I could, you know, have like a in- informational meeting with Bruce about like, how do I make it here? <laughs> how does this become a real job? And we just got along and, and you know, I think you said, um, you know, if I have extra work, I'll throw it your way. And, and then that started to happen. And after I got worked on my own t- TV show, because I was mostly doing indie film still at mm-hmm. this, as of like five years ago, 
Um, I started, I, I got my own TV show in 2017 or something like that and learned the ropes of that side, uh, aside from just indie film, because Bruce mostly works in TV. And um, then we kind of knew that we had like the ability to properly team up um, and collaborate. So maybe we could talk about a couple of your your projects as a way of illustrating your your process a bit. Only Murders in the Building, uh, which y'all did the music supervision for. Um, what were those sort of early conversations about the music like? You know, wh- what do you want in those first conversations with a showrunner or a director to kind of get you going on your job? That show in particular is just like an absolute dream gig. Mm-hmm. They aren't always that dreamy. Yeah, everyone uh, I've talked to who worked on that show had that response to it, that it was just like a joy to work on. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, John Hoffman, the showrunner, co-created it with Steve Martin. And um, so John runs it, meaning, I'm sure you know what a showrunner is. It's like, you know, in this case, he's just uh, has the impossible task of overseeing absolutely everything. <laughs> um, and so when it's time for him to check in with us, it's usually, I don't know, music, it depends on the show. It, in some cases, it seems like music's one of the last places because it's so far in the post-process if it wasn't something that was done on camera. Um, I think someone in his position or even someone who reports to him is usually like so beat down that they're just like, okay, like, oh, we're mixing this thing in two weeks. Like, where are we, you guys? Uh, do we, you know, are we cleared? Like, it's just like the the minutia, the, the stress around delivering episodes of TV. And this is just like the opposite. It's just like, yes, and, you know, like <laughs> what, I was, so to answer your question more specifically, like when we first met on the show, like, you know, you someone hits you up about a project, you meet, you may or may not get the job. But upon our very first meeting, it was just like a party. Like we were mm. on a Zoom with like, I don't know how many people. It was Jamie Babbitt who directed the pilot, I think had brought us on. Or you know, throwing our names in the ring, and we met with um, with Jamie and John and a, and a few others, and it was just like, what is it? You know, like what are we doing here? What could it be? Is it are there show tunes? Is it New York? Is it Broadway? Is it punk rock? Is it dirty? Is it Ace Freely? Like it was just like absolutely everything, and so we were able to craft that together conceptually, and then um, the composer uh, Sid has a huge hand in in the sound of that show. Um, some episodes are really song heavy. Some aren't as much. Um, but I would just say, I mean, this show in particular, it's just like, it's been, it's such a delight. And it, I think it has almost everything to do with John and his approach to making TV. And like saying yes, excitedly kind of vibes, you know? Mm-hmm. Like if we float an idea, he's just like, yeah, let's try that. Let's do it, you know? And, you know, I've worked with other people that are, it's sort of like the opposite impulse. It's like, show me more, show me more, show me more, show me more, prove it. Let's hear, like, their creative process is such that, like, until every idea and option is exhausted, they can't trust that they've found the right answer. Whereas, like, this sort of, I don't even know if John, I I would venture to guess that John comes from a theater background and or, like, a improv background, because it's like, the yes and of it all is like really palpable. It's just like everything's always rising. It's like, mm-hmm. let's, yeah, I love it. I love it. Let's do it. And, and the characters kind of are the three main characters anyway, kind of have their own musical vocabulary over mm-hmm. the course of those shows. Steve Martin, of course, there's a, there's a lot of bluegrass in his character. Martin Short, there's, there's a lot of theater music in his character. Selena Gomez's character, it's much more contemporary. Exactly. You know, was that something you were told at the beginning, this is what this is going to be? Or did it come out of those meetings? Or, you know, how did you figure out how to kind of root the cues in the various characters. It wasn't really explicit from the start. I mean, in the pilot, we threw a Dua Lipa song. It may have actually been scripted over mm-hmm. the introdu- Selena's introduction. And then there's like a Broadway piece over, over Martin's stuff. So I think some of it was sort of really obvious, in a, not in like a way that's not interesting or exciting, but... Mm-hmm if we're not dealing with like a character specific thing, I think it's, it's always better to be a little counterintuitive about it. Um, and so some of the songs, at least in like recent episodes, speak more to the predicament or the mystery or the story at large. We'll be back with more of Isaac's conversation with Bruce Gilbert and Lauren Micus. 
What's the best way to learn a language? Immersion, living where the language is spoken and using it every day in everyday situations. But if that's not on the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way, and that's with Babbel. I've used apps in the past to learn new languages, but when I came across Babbel, I wondered if it could help me refresh my knowledge of a language I once spoke well, but was now a little bit or quite a lot rusty. I have to say, I was impressed. The advanced lessons were really useful, tips and idioms that can help with in-depth conversations on topics that I can actually imagine chatting about. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel is designed by real people for real conversations, and the tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. What's more, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time deal for working listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for working listeners, at babbel.com slash working. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash working, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash working. Rules and restrictions may apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. Listeners, we really want to hear from you. Whether it's to ask us for advice on a creative problem, tell us a guest you'd like to hear on the show, or share your own creative triumphs, drop us a line at working at slate.com or give us a ring at 304-933-WORK. And if you're enjoying this episode, don't forget to subscribe to Working wherever you get your podcasts. Now let's return to Isaac's conversation with Bruce Gilbert and Lauren Micus. You know, I have to ask, uh, obviously this job entails having a very broad taste in music and very deep knowledge of it. There's got to be some time when a director or showrunner stuff has their heart set on a song you personally despise or that you feel <laughs> like would be a ethical crime to unleash on the public. Or like, what, what, does, does that ever happen? What do you do in those moments? Where you're like, oh, my God, he, I'm not going to name a song. But, you know, he wants this song and I just would rather tear out my hair than have to listen to. Of course. Yes, that's happens. We hope it's too expensive. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. 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 Then are you just like, oh, the rights just weren't, weren't available. Yeah. I'm so yeah, sorry. We, we weren't able. Yeah, we just couldn't track that down. Um, well, the good news is this isn't even me being diplomatic. I, I, we've been lucky enough to work on shows where that isn't something that we've encountered many times. It mm-hmm. has for sure happened. I would say it's like, in some cases, I've found it like, there was something scripted and in TV, like the writer is so important that like a lot of times in my experience, like a, a producer will sort of honor something that's scripted for as long as makes sense um, until maybe we see a cut finally in the edit. And it's like, yeah, we're not using that. Um, or like, first of all, some writers will be like, oh, I just threw it in there. And others are like, oh, I wrote all weekend to it. Um, in which case it's like, I, well, maybe it does belong in there. Like, mm-hmm. I don't have like a proprietary interest in like making it my my choice or our choice, mm-hmm. right. um, especially if it's good. Um, in some cases, if it's really weak, it's probably been used before maybe too many times. So that's usually a pretty good deterrent. You can be like, mm-hmm. oh, I actually saw this on, and then, you know, mm-hmm. insert show that will turn off writer here, you know. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's a great, that's a great tip. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. It's like, uh, well, you wouldn't like it. It's more of a Shelby Town idea. Right? <laughs> <laughs> the thing from The Simpsons. Um, 
You know, this is maybe a segue to talking about everything everywhere all at once, because one of the running gags in that film is actually has to do with that song. Absolutely. Story of a girl by nine days. Uh, Within the film's multiverse, the song pops up a bunch of times with different lyrics that are relevant to whichever multiverse scenario we happen to be in. Uh, To give a sense of what this is like, actually, let's uh, listen to the original song first. This is the story of a girl who cried a river and drowned the whole world. And while she looks so sad in photographs, I absolutely love her when she smiles. And here are some of the versions you hear in the movie. This is the story of a chef, a raccoon on the top of his head. This is the story of a dumb. She tied me up so good, but it's wrong. This is the Was that in there before you all signed on? Was that something they were they were doing to begin with? Or was that an idea that arose out of meetings you had with the Daniels? Or, or how did that come to be? It wasn't originally written to the script, although they do reference lyrics in a scene where uh, Alpha Wayman is explaining to Evelyn, you know, what the, the feeling around the the darkness that they're all trying to escape right. by, you know, jumping around these these multiverses. And that was sort of like a joke that had happened between the Daniels and uh, as they were writing and they kept it in there. And it came just kind of came about naturally in conversation from the Daniels about like how we could maybe utilize that song and make it funny. And um, they kind of picked those different moments. And then we were like, you know, well, let's see if this, let's see if this band is down for this kind of not expecting, you never know with these kind of scenarios where you want to change lyrics and like you want to, you know, sort of make it like a tongue in cheek kind of experience. And, and luckily, you know, John Hampson, who wrote the song and he was just immediately down, just a film fan, like so excited about it. Just like, so we had one phone call or we had like a one big zoom with everybody and they were just kind of, we were all spitballing like funny lyric ideas about Mm. how we could change it for those specific universes. And um, so you all wrote the kind of gag lyrics together. Yeah, they did together. Um, The Daniel kind of like almost, they had some ideas and he had some just kind of like came up spontaneously on this on our like kind of I think the first meeting mm-hmm. and then he kind of got quickly got us just like little examples of of so it kind of was just one of those like beautiful kismet moments where everyone like kind of like what Bruce was saying about how we feel about on only murders just that first meeting kind of like spitballing ideas and being on the same page and it's sort of feeling like a fun party and then you kind of really know that you've got something good you know from Mm -hmm. all the creatives being fusing together and it does seem like that helps address one of what i imagine is a creative challenge as the music supervisor on that film which is like what does music in another universe sound like like in a universe where we all have Mm -hmm. hot dog hands what's playing on the radio or whatever (laughs) is a that's a weird creative challenge that i i I have to imagine was a new one yeah it was i mean the daniels you know they're they had such an intricate relationship with all of those universes and obviously like had an idea about what they were doing, but we were trying to keep it, you know, interesting and find things that fit within each universe, but also fit into the film as a whole. And I Mm -hmm. think that was, and also that's the most importantly, like the score is a huge part of that film. And we definitely were trying to provide them with options for, you know, whatever they were thinking that wouldn't distract or overpower the score that's kind of like sometimes gently but sometimes excitedly like moving us along on this crazy ride through all these different experiences and universes you know well with the score specifically you you all I mean you didn't write the score but you were involved in the the process with the score right and interfacing with the band and and all that I mean we were around to help with some technical aspects and stuff but mostly that was like the Daniels and, and Sunlux just had like a great oh, shorthand um, and kind of, you know, I, we helped them out with, they did a cover of a, a traditional like Chinese opera piece that we found and, you know, like kind of helped them incorporate elements of other songs into their score and, and in that sort of way. But they, they knew that they wanted to work together and just had such a great like rapport and were, were you know, they worked so well and so diligently together 
and did such a great job. So, But sometimes, you know, as you mentioned at the beginning of the program, sometimes you do have to work as the kind of translator, right? Between those two groups of people of like, uh, well, what the director really means is that. Oh, yeah. It has oh, to be, yeah. it has to be fiery and in a minor key, yeah. or, you know, whatever it is. Yes, for sure. Are there plenty of shows where I'll get a call from a composer saying like, hey, uh, what the fuck was he talking about um, <laughs> and other times like we won't even hear from a composer because they have mm-hmm. such a great shorthand either from you know prior experience with the director with the showrunner um or they're just a it's a great fit and it's seemingly effortless i mean the the composers are doing a ton of work obviously but the the conversation isn't labored you know it's it's not tricky or difficult or um or confusing but yeah sometimes we have to be a a translator or a uh a therapist a lot of times um sometimes it's just like yeah talking somebody down but you know like it's like a creative it's a creative helping a creative <laughs> versus right. yeah. versus and some producers are really well suited at sort of like letting letting people know that like it's going to be fine you know you're we love what you're doing it's you know i you can tell when someone's really fucked because the producer will uh lead with a giant compliment <laughs> before they like dive into an even we love what you're doing but cr- yeah criticism yeah right. and, the, and the compliments not specific at all <laughs> yeah, right? yeah. It's, you know. yeah yeah you're doing such yeah. great work so or, yeah um, it looks like you're having fun out there but <laughs> oh, no that's the worst that's the i that's mean for you... my you know there's that 30 rock episode where there's the montage of tina fey's compliments about the about jenna maroney's plays getting less and less <laughs> sincere and at the end she's just like the program the paper stock is so <laughs> <laughs> that was definitely my experience as a theater director sometimes. There are times on on other shows and films where we are providing, even maybe sometimes before there's a composer or helping the composer with like temping, you know, if there isn't quite an idea yet between the showrunner or director or composer, um, we will kind of pull a big wide net together to kind of hone in on what what is this world going to sound like and what is the sound of the show? And I think, you know, with everything everywhere at once, those guys knew it and had it. And But in other, a lot of our other jobs, like sometimes people don't know it yet or have it. And then that is when we do have a bigger creative hand and, and giving them sonic, you know, templates to like at least be the first domino that inspires like, you know, the rest of it. Yeah, so. I was about to ask, you know, how do you help your collaborators get unstuck? Is it just you come to them with like, 32 flavors of of what the piece could be and then they say you know mint chocolate chip is the one i want or you know and we send them ice cream (laughs) yeah Yeah, i mean on some projects there's a huge temping sort of workload where we're basically for for our listeners real quick temping is the the tracks Uh, that they put on an edit that have the feel of what it should be, but aren't the actual final music that the composer is going to do, right? Yeah, it, it has its own fascinating um, outcome sometimes, which we refer to as temp love, where we've heard something against picture for so long that when it comes time to either license it, if it's a song, or replace it with score, which is often the case, uh, sometimes a producer or director has a really hard time parting with what they've heard there even if it wasn't perfect, even if it was just a placeholder. Um, and so when, when we're temping something, we're, we're doing that you know, throughout many, many, sometimes all the scenes. Sometimes a composer isn't on board yet. Sometimes a composer doesn't have a lot of stuff in their catalog that sounds much like what we're going for. Um, and they're busy getting started on writing sketches and composing pieces that are ultimately going to you know, be the connective tissue. And until then we have to find stuff that like we think is maybe somewhere in the neighborhood of where, where we're going to ultimately land. Um, so that's a big part of it on, on some shows. One thing that's come up a few times over the course of our conversation is that the, the job entails a surprising amount of emotional caretaking um, for a job that, you know, maybe that isn't what you thought it would be when you you first got in the biz and were clearing the rights for some adagio for Tree of Life or whatever. Um, and, and so I'm curious about learning to do that, learning the part of the job that has to do with putting people's minds at ease and being a generous collaborator and everything like that. Did, did that come easy? Was that itself a learning process? Were you surprised at how much you have to do it? A little bit surprising, but I kind of understood it as sort of a, 
how we all are so emotional and connected to and through music that I guess like it kind of inspires a little bit of like, oh, you have to be empathetic about this, you know, because like you feel that way about songs and they feel that way about songs. But I guess you kind of think like if you're doing something like as a job that it won't translate into that world. But then at the end of the day, it kind of makes sense that it does, because as we are all creatives, helping creatives, as Bruce said, and like we all have such, you know, our own emotional subjective connection to the songs we want to hear or put in our projects or whatever. Yeah, I think I think it's something that you naturally kind of learn through the process as your career evolves in doing multiple jobs to like come to expect it and then sort of like have the dialogue around it, um, become a better therapist as time goes on, I guess. <laughs> I, I think like we all spent, I mean, most of us who found our way to this job have spent so much time talking about music and what moves us that that part is easy. I don't, we don't ever have to make a case for anything because the music speaks for itself. And so mm-hmm. a composer who's writing can write from their, you know, their true self. And if we're finding music, I mean, we have a different task, which is like, you know, it's obviously terribly subjective, but once we're all sort of on the same page, we're just making suggestions and exploring possibilities. And I know even though we're not writing music, I think I'm doing my best work when I'm not trying too hard, frankly. And so if I read a script and go to sleep, I can wake up with the, for my, like, again, it's back to like the perfectionistic aspect of it, but I'll wake up with the answer, you know, for me. And if it's a great collaboration, then someone will either push you to figure out something else if it's not what they're feeling, or in in many cases, they'll totally be keyed into the same impulse. Mm -hmm. And so I think addressing that with a composer, just being like, if you're trying so hard at something, it might not be the right move you know it might be something that you can sort of like take your foot off the gas a little bit and slow down and feel your way through it um i know for us if it's like if we're working on a project where someone's like asking for more and more and more and more and more a we're getting burnt out b we're not really like pursuing our true creative impulses we're kind of pursuing someone else's Mm -hmm. attempt at one or what they think it might be or someone Mm -hmm. has something in their head but they're not hearing it but we're not writing it so I think when it's like effortless and by effortless, I mean like something that comes easily because you've put in your 10,000 plus hours or whatever. Um, not cause you're not trying hard. I think those are some of like the sweetest moments. Um, so I think enlisting someone to do the same or sort of reminding them that like, that it doesn't need to be too terribly difficult. I think probably gets you there a little faster. Well, Bruce, Lauren, thank you so much for joining us here this week on Working and Sharing Your Process with us. Thanks for all the great questions. Thank you. Yeah, this was really fun. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Isaac, that was so great. Thank you. One thing that really struck me at the beginning of your conversation, when you were asking them how they both got into the music supervision business, was when they said that they were both music heads, which, you know, obviously is something that's necessary for that job, because basically it's all about constantly coming up with the note juste, as you might say. (laughs) I recognize the desire to work in a field that you're passionate about, but 
as someone who has a tendency to go all in on something that I'm into, become fully obsessed with it, and then pretty often just kind of let it go, it feels like a lot of pressure to put on something you love. Do you share my hesitation about having a passion become your nine to five? Well, that's an interesting question. I mean, first of all, you're absolutely right. They come at it from different directions. You know, uh, Lauren, for example, is a musician and has a band called Gal Pals. And, you know, Bruce came to it from the advertising side and, and stuff like that. But the thing they share is this kind of obsession with with music and with figuring out, you know, how it fits into storytelling. But is, you know, taking that passion and turning it into their nine to five really that different from what you and I have done with our lives, June? I mean, just because we're not going to an office or drawing a weekly salary, uh, that doesn't mean we haven't turned our passions, you know, writing the creative process, the history of lesbian activism, American culture, what have you. (laughs) You know, we've turned those things into our jobs. I actually think that's one of the really hard parts about writing a book is, you know, that book's your job and sometimes you hate your job and you're your own boss. Boss, and sometimes you hate your boss just because you're your own boss and it's a passion project doesn't mean you won't have bad days. And I think yeah. like making your peace with that is actually one of the really important parts of doing creative work. Yeah, totally. And yeah, it's a great point. And it's also the main reason that you should never, ever, ever commit to writing a book on a topic that you're kind of meh with because you're going to spend a lot of time with it. You're going to have hard days and the more you really do love the thing that you're writing about and you just want to learn more and more and more, the less depressing it's going to yeah. be, I think. You know, in the 60s, they could just blow through all that with amphetamines. You know, you could just call the right <laughs> doctor, get prescribed some amphetamines and just, just go to work. You know, you could get that book finished in six months, but you can't do that yeah. now. Yeah, we have no Dr. Feelgoods. It was interesting to hear Bruce and Lauren's thinking around new artists. Basically, Everyone who does their job is listening to everyone. So trying to find the next new sound is really stressful because it's what, you know, everyone's doing and how can they find the right music? Mm -hmm. At the same time, though, we are living in a moment where almost every piece of music is pretty much almost instantly accessible. Oh, I'm feeling stressed just even thinking about those endless possibilities. Um... I know that I crave some constraints to spark creativity. Do you have any tips for creating restrictions when none are provided externally kind of by the gig? Oh, yeah. Well, you know, uh, well, first of all, I think every gig's going to apply some constraints, right? I mean, yeah, there is yeah, none where yeah. it's like the music could be anything. I mean, that's never <laughs> going to happen. So, but, Phew. but you know, it's a good point. And I think in, in almost every creative discipline, you're actually going to hit these moments where you don't have enough constraints and it's actually much more difficult as a result. Yeah. I yeah. think in those moments when it feels like the possibilities are so limitless, you can't do anything. Uh, what you have to do is just come up with some arbitrary restraints just to see what happens. I wouldn't impose them permanently, but for like a day or two of work or even an hour or two of work or or whatever, you know, they can be really helpful. And arbitrary restraints, they could be super involved. Uh, Today, uh, I'm not going to use the letter E when I write. So every word I choose has to not have the letter E in it. Or it could be much looser. I'm going to write without stopping for 20 minutes no matter what. Um, One of my favorite things to do, this is a a concrete tip, is to look Mm. up an oblique strategy. June, have you ever used the oblique strategies? Never. So these are these creativity prompts developed by uh, the brilliant composer, musician, producer Brian Eno and the artist Peter Schmidt. And as you might imagine, they're they're not literal. You know, uh, you can go, they they were originally a stack of cards, and you would just pick a card at random, and it would have this one sentence or even sometimes one word thing to tell you what to do with your creative project, and you would go do it. Now you don't have to do that. You can go online. You can Google oblique strategy generator, and it will spit one out for you. For example, I just did it and it said, (laughs) be less critical more often. And then you try to figure out a way to apply that to the work you're doing for a set amount of time. Well, okay. Let me do it. Um, remove ambiguities and convert to specifics. Right. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I am often much too in love with ambiguity. (laughs) So yeah, I, I can get behind that. Also, Arbitrary Restraints is definitely going to be my my next band name. Oh, yeah. Um, 
I loved your question about what they do when the showrunner or director is absolutely committed to a song that they hate. As you said, there are sensible arguments you can make, but when a writer has really connected with a song and kind of written to it, you have to at least make an effort to see if it's going to be possible to use it. Mm-hmm. Because of the behind-the-scenes podcast I made about the show, I spent a lot of time talking to the Jays, Joe Weisberg and Joel Fields, the showrunners of The Americans. And I know that pieces of music from the period where the show was set were hugely important to them when they were writing. They were so excited when the kind of in-show calendar allowed them to use a song that had come out by then so like they were super excited when it was time to use brothers in arms by dire straits i remember that episode yeah but at the same time they were adamant that they'd never use like stings russians because that was just too on the nose is there a show that you think has found the kind of happy balance between obvious and obscure i think the rule of thumb is default to obscure actually Mm -hmm. Uh, and Mm -hmm. i am really not a fan of the recent trend towards big needle drops so that everyone yeah. on Twitter will talk about the song you used in your episode. You know, when yeah. you re- when I read about that happening, everyone's like, oh, can you believe they use this song? All I hear is, oh, can you believe the show had the budget to use this mm-hmm, song? Like it doesn't, mm-hmm. it just sounds like money change yeah. raining down onto yeah. the table. It does not sound like the, the song itself. And I think that if you do something that's too well known, you can get in a lot of trouble. To, to take the Americans as an example, I loved the, the chase scene where they use Tusk. I thought that was such a fascinating choice to use this kind of disreputable song from Fleetwood Mac's uh, catalog and make it really work for that chase scene. But I yeah. I could spend the rest of our, our discussion today talking about how much I hated the use of With or Without You in the finale. I mean, that's a song you hear in grocery stores. Yes. It's marrow has been drained, you know? (laughs) And so it just so took me out of that moment that I actually, you know, there's no, I had felt almost no emotional connection towards that moment in the show because of the, really because of the use of that song. Um, I think one thing that's happened, of course, is that, you know, TV has really gotten eaten up by these conglomerates that have their Mm -hmm. own music libraries. And so it has become easier to access those really expensive songs. Um, And so there is a recent trend towards that. But I I really love when I discover a kind of music through the milieu of a show or songs that I hadn't heard of, or, you know, you look up the Spotify playlist of every song played in insecure, for example, insecure and constant music. And every choice was so brilliant. Um, There's a show called lodge 49 that only lasted for two seasons on AMC that uh, friend of the program, Laura Miller and I are huge, huge fans of. And the music from lodge 49 is amazing. It's its own Groove. It's its own kind of osmutante stereo lab, uh-uh. you know, scronky surf rock, you know, drugged out groove, kind of psych surf music. And I just <laughs> loved it. I'm going all the way, pretty baby. My time is soon, yeah. Going all the way, pretty baby. To see what I can do. Wow. So, one thing that I now want to write on a post-it note and like put on the wall in front of me was Bruce's observation that, quote, most of us who found our way to this job have spent so much time talking about music that we're comfortable with that part of the job. You know, he referenced the kind of 10,000 hours idea. This isn't something that you're necessarily great at on your first day in a job, but At the same time, it's kind of hard to be confident when you set out that you will develop those very necessary skills by like day 1200. You know, talking about things like ineffable qualities, like, you know, the emotions that a piece of music evokes, that's really hard. I am guessing that because you spent a lot of time as a director of theatre, and that is a job that is insanely communication dependent, that you have some ideas about this. Are there things 
that people can do to get better at talking about ideas and movement and gestures and things that really aren't always easy to express. I think there definitely are. Although I should preface this by saying that as a director, I almost always chose all the music for my shows. I Uh took very little input in it. I had very clear ideas. One of the places I started in thinking when I would read a script is what music comes to mind when I'm reading it. That's when I knew that it had touched me in such a way that I would have something to say about it and want to direct it. You know, the biggest thing you can do, I think, when you're talking about abstract stuff is make it concrete as quickly as possible. Brian Eno was right. Yeah. You you have to, uh, you have to just use concrete examples, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, It's so easy for things to exist purely in the realm of ideas and talking about ideas, being in the conceptual plane, that's really important. But you know, June, you and I might agree on an idea and completely disagree on what that idea looks or sounds like or feels like right, in the real right, world. You right. know, so we might be like, oh, I want this song to be really peppy. And I'm thinking, I don't know, Elvis Costello's watching the detectives and that that drum hit at the intro, mm-hmm. right? And you're thinking... Um, Tusk. Uh, uh, you're thinking Tusk or you're thinking, you know, ABBA's Take a Chance on Me or something, you know? <laughs> Those are two completely different versions of Peppy. So, you know, the earlier you can start talking about comps and real world examples, the better. You know, I did this show Real Enemies, um, which was about conspiracy theories in American public life. And so in talking to the wonderful light and set designer Maruti Evans for that show, we... um, very quickly we're like, well, obviously the visual milieu is going to pull from 70s paranoid cinema because that's the mm-hmm. visual grammar of paranoia that still affects us today. But mm-hmm. even within that, is does it look like the conversation, which is has a lot of browns and is very foggy and is San Francisco and has the kind of grain in the cinematography because it's a lot of long lens cinematography? Or is it the parallax view, which is lots of shadow and sort of using only parts of the image and red, white, and blue colors come up a lot? You know, the so those kinds of questions, again, the more you're just getting towards real world examples, the better. Wow. You know, this show always like gives me homework in the best possible way. And now all I want to do is watch those movies. So thank you, Isaac. If you have the Criterion channel, I think Parallax View is coming to it very soon. Good to know. All right, listeners, we hope you've enjoyed this week's show. If you have, remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. That way you'll never miss an episode. And just a reminder that by joining Slate Plus, you'll get ad-free podcasts, extra episodes of shows like Slow Burn and Big Mood, Little Mood, and you'll never hit a paywall on the Slate site. To learn more, go to slate.com slash working plus. Thank you to our guests, Bruce Gilbert and Lauren Micas, and to our fabulous producer, Cameron Drews, who is the baseline to our guitar line. We'll be back next week with June's conversation with pioneering feminist publisher and mystery writer Barbara Wilson. Until then, get back to work. 